0: From SHARE Cancer Support, this is Our NBC Life, and I'm Lisa Laudico. During this Black History Month and as the healthcare world continues to talk about racial disparities in access, care, and outcomes, we are pleased to share this special episode from our friends at the Three Black Docs podcast. They recorded this episode about the legacy of Henrietta Lacks this past summer on the 100th anniversary of her birth. Have a listen.
1: Welcome back to Three Black Dots with Dr. Tiffany, Dr. Karen, and Dr. Zanetta.
2: So this past week, last week, August 1st, was Henrietta Lack's birthday. And she would have been 100
3: on August oh, 1st. Oh, she would have been 100. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh okay.
2: Yeah. And so um, on the Facebook site, we put something out um, on her birthday. Um, and I guess it was a little bit, you know, of media attention about it again, because it would have been her 100th birthday. Um, but the story of Henrietta Lex, did you guys read the book,
3: I The Immortal Life? I I, I, oh, you know, I couldn't finish it. I could not finish it. And I tried, I promise, I promise I tried. To, did not like the writing at all. I think I, I ended up going to, to Wikipedia or something and too. just, I couldn't do it.
2: Well, I liked the book.
3: Um, no, it's, I, I I purchased it.
2: Yeah, I, have I it. read it when I guess it came out about 10 years ago now. But anyway, and so it told the story of Henrietta Lacks. She was a woman in Baltimore who went in to get treated for advanced cervical cancer and unfortunately died shortly after at the age of only 31, you know, to die from cervical cancer. That. Terrible. It's so striking to me, you know, just the advances that we made since then. But one of the reasons we made so many advances is because while she was there, her cells were taken and stored for research. And uh, they found that her cells didn't die in culture for the first time. So she was had the first immortal cell line in culture. Um... And the story was so interesting because it was like her cells were being used for all kinds of research.
3: I mean nobel. Biomedical prizes.
2: research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this went on for twenty five years until they found out that other cell lines that they thought were from other like cancers, prostate, breast, turned out to also be her cells, which are called HeLa cells for Henrietta Lacks, H-E-L-A, HeLa cells. And so they were trying to figure out, kind of separate out which ones were HeLa cells and which ones were other types. And that's how they contacted the family. Which is egregious. Family's DNA. Right. To try to figure out.
1: Sort out. which is what, Sort yeah. it
2: out. And that's how they found out that they had her cells growing in culture. For those 25 years, and in that time, I mean those cells have been you know sold by companies, people have profited right they, they've been using cancer research, vaccine
1: research, polio vaccine research, you know, IVF research so what's fascinating is that her cells weren't even used to really look at cervical cancer, right so right. A lot of research wasn't even done around cervical cancer because when I was in the lab, y'all know I've spent however many years getting mm-hmm. my PhD, I used hela cells all mm-hmm. The time and had no idea yeah. what that good mm-hmm. for. Um, isn't that crazy? Isn't crazy? Like, and you know, I remember
3: asking, like, what is this for? And other people didn't know and they should have known by then. I'm not necessarily,
1: you know? I don't know. Like, so when was this? What year was this? See,
3: so uh, this would have been early 2000s, yeah. So, I mean, the yeah. book
1: came out what
3: 2010 maybe,
1: 2010, about 10 years fair ago. Enough.
3: Yeah. Fair so enough, fair enough,
1: yeah. yeah. Really, the you know, because uh, again, I think it was not hidden, but and there obviously people mm-hmm. knew, but I really think it was that book made it more um, public, and that's where you started to get the groundswell of saying, "Look, so many people have profited. There's been amazing research, and the family has gotten nothing, and these cells were taken without her permission." That's the biggest, thing. right? Um, and I know we were talking a little bit about clinical trials earlier, and that's, you know, I, I don't know. Again, this would have been tissue that would have been tossed away Uh or perhaps looked at under a microscope and stored. Um, But still, if there's going to be something that's going to be looked at and researched beyond that, there really needs to be informed consent around that. Um, And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. this was before the time where, Uh number one, they didn't think she was black. She was a black woman, right? Right. Henrietta Lacks was black. um, and, And I'm sure there were probably people who didn't think that she deserved to have any say-so in her care.
3: (laughs) And sadly, it was the norm. Yeah. This was
2: 1951.
1: Yeah. You know, that's when things were all segregated. And
3: and Hopkins was the, that's where the Black people went. To me,
1: it's
2: fascinating to consider how much has changed since then. You know, um, just like you're saying, Karen, just the idea that, like, You could take cells and nobody even know (laughs) until really a fluke, you know, 25 years later. I mean, I think it speaks to what has been put in place now when you are conducting research in terms of making sure that everything is reviewed by an institutional review board and that, you know, people have informed consent and that you really have these safeguards up to protect patients, you know, to protect people from this from this happening,
1: right? Well, let's be clear. I mean, the people who took her cells and the people who were growing the HeLa cells in culture knew exactly where they came from. Mm-hmm. The only thing that happened in terms of her family being notified is that there was some cells that were contaminated. Right. were cell lines that were contaminated. And they wanted cells. their DNA to Correct. help sort it out. Well, the family found out right. about it. But, you know, again, that the, they've known where they've come from. That's because they, they were
3: able that. to contact the family.
1: Right. And, but also because they were named Hela, so they were named after her. and right. so they, they were
3: named after her. They knew exactly
1: where they were from. It's just Crazy. literally researchers like, oh, there maybe there's something's that's not right. Let's go talk to her family. But that's how her family was notified, which is cray. You know? Yeah. So much that's been, you know, that those cells have contributed so deeply to so much research. I mean, so much research. Um, you know, but what's funny is that you talked about how young she was. Not funny, but Interesting. Talk about how far we've come. Yeah. And our, our very first part of our first very first podcast was talking about HPV vaccine. Yes, it
3: was. Yes, and it was.
1: Cervical cancer yep. is caused from HPV. Yeah. And there has been a lot that's been learned about cervical cancer, where that used to kill young women you know yes. we kill black women and kill other women um cervical cancer and we don't see that the the numbers of of women mm-hmm. who have cervical cancer in the country has declined as has the deaths from cervical cancer in the country has declined simply because you know we now know kind of what the causative agent is mm-hmm. um, we've come far because of research but it just has to be done in the right way right
2: but that's one of the things that you know I love about medicine is that you know you can think about how quickly things move, you know, and things change and we can intervene and make a difference. Like, you know, you mentioned that we talked about the cervical cancer vaccine in one of our first episodes, which now was what, I don't know, two months ago, maybe. And even since then, that vaccination has gotten another FDA indication, right, for head and neck cancer. So I think when we talked about, in that episode, HPV being a virus, you know, that can cause cervical and head and neck cancer. At the time we were talking about it, the vaccination was only approved um, to prevent cervical cancer. That's since expanded in the last month to also say, yeah, we have enough proof to say that it also um, can prevent head and neck cancers, which are associated um, with the same virus. And so You know, there's just another example of how quickly things change in medicine. Um, And especially in cancer, how much progress we've seen. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea that someone who is 31 would die uh, from a cervical cancer to me is like, you know, you can't, you almost can't even um, fathom it. And it is one of the cancers now where you, again, you have screening right? Screening guidelines that start early on. Um, I think they start at 25 for cervical cancer now.
1: Actually, they um, start three years after your first sexual encounter. It used to be
2: that.
3: We'll look it up. Yeah. What do you mean, the HPV now, vaccine? No, no, no. no.
0: The, oh, 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 the yeah. oh,
3: no, no. Yeah, I thought it starts way earlier than that. Yeah, it's in your teens. It, 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 a lot of it is dependent on when you start having sex. Exactly.
1: But, but you know, I think we can certainly look that up and verify. But that was actually yeah. interesting because, you know, I mentioned our podcast. As I mentioned, I was we were leading. We had our A4C meeting, the North Carolina Advisory Committee on Cancer Coordination and Control. Our meeting was today, and as you guys know, I kind of lead the section on prevention. And so, we had one of our members was talking about the H the HPV so human papillomavirus and because that's a huge area right this the Centers for Disease Control has this program called BCEP, which is around kind of um, yeah. cancer and cervical cancer control mm-hmm. and you know the guidelines and making sure people mm-hmm. are aware but we have primary care doctors who are like I just can't keep up like things change so fast you know to Tiffany's point And so this is why, you know, people were like, oh, let's write a book chapter. How about we not? Because by the time that book chapter comes out, it's too late. It's too late. Everything is too late. And so that's why kind of these sorts of opportunities where we can use social media and podcasts and try to get information out sooner is really important. And I've always said my desire was to create a platform for dissemination of timely and accurate information into the black community because timely is important. When these things are changing so rapidly, when these guidelines are changing, when the indications are changing mm-hmm. so rapidly, you know how do we get the information out to communities? The only way is if we're literally have a, some form of communication where we can deliver that, that information. Because that change for the FDA just happened last month, right? That uh, in terms of for head and neck cancers, right, Tiff?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was like a month. Well, we're in August now, so yeah, it was right. June.
1: Yeah,
0: right.
2: It was it's, June. So- so, so that, for, that is in between when we talked about it on right. our podcast, which is brand new, that just started. Right. And, and, and now.
3: A, right. And a lot of us also think that it could right. prevent anal cancer as well. Mm-hmm. So, you right. know, I, th- I think we're waiting, just right. kind of waiting on that to, yeah. to happen so, as well. Mm-hmm. But back to the cervical cancer screening guidelines, I just pulled it up. Yep. It w- it's 21. I think I thought it was earlier than that, but it looks like all of the uh, professional organizations are saying 21.
2: Yeah, it used to uh, be determined based on when your first sexual encounter Th- that's, was. That's, but that's but what now I thought. There's an idea that your body could naturally
1: clear it, I think. I say. Mm, I think there's the, uh, always the idea that the body can naturally clear, but that's interesting. Yeah. It says for average risk women. So. I wonder what a high risk woman would
3: be considered
2: and here oh, even nurses America-
3: changed, so
2: well, an American cancer society is twenty 25, yes
1: yeah uh-huh, yeah, so this goes
3: twenty five
0: every
1: five years, the yep, importance of having conversations with your doctor to talk about what your risks are mm-hmm. um but I think there's no you know my thing is if you're concerned and you know you get have- you
3: need to get it's, yeah okay, get it done. Have- You know, because
1: that's the thing. I mean, you see, and I'll have to look at the data. I haven't looked at the data recently for immigrant populations, but what we were seeing is cervical cancer amongst young women for immigrants. And part of it is because they weren't Mm. tested and they don't know about screening. And so that's part of the education that happens with with newly immigrant populations that needs to happen from a health, you know, standpoint and population health standpoint is to actually have those conversations around different types of screening and how to utilize the healthcare system in the United States, that sort of thing. But I'll have to look and see. I, I thought Hispanic women, there was a relatively high incidence of cervical cancer amongst young women. But like I said, it's been a long time since I've looked at that data, so I'll have to pull that up. Mm-hmm. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three left Dogs is available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Yay!
1: Henrietta
3: Black, <laughs> 100
1: years old.
0: Wow. yes and her
3: husband died in 2002
1: oh huh. really so it was after this oh it was, it was right after the book came out right oh, no the book. book came well, out in 2010 i think
2: let's see what did y'all really not like the book i like the book i, I, th- I
3: couldn't i could not get through You it couldn't. Like... Mm-mm.
2: Mm-mm. okay
3: Mm-mm. well let's see when the book come Mm-mm. out and you know didn't she get married when she was like 14 yeah you're right 2010 20, yes 2010 20. yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating. She got married when she was fourteen, had some kids, and died at thirty-one. I mean, this is thirty-one. A... Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's that's
3: unbelievable.
1: Incredible. That's so sad. But I'm, you know, I'm glad her family has been recognized at least. And you know, I think there's mm-hmm. no way to quantify, kind of, really how much we really owe her <laughs> in terms of how much progress has been made scientifically through the use of her cells. Um, right. But I do think it's important too, as Tiffany mentioned. We've really changed the way that science is done, at least in the yeah. for the most part. And it's not to say there aren't things that happen that are a little crazy, whack, funky every once in a while. But
3: right, like our discussion last week. What with the uh, the 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 journal about professionalism? Oh yeah,
1: yeah, that wasn't research though. <laughs> Come on now, you know, don't get started. On that. Don't get started. But but hey, hey,
2: we. We have a platform then that, you know, Ash could, could link the New York Times article that came out about it because we're, we're timely. We're talking about the right. timely stuff in medicine.
1: Right. Yeah. Like it or not. But, you know, research is, is the way to move the needle forward in terms of medicine. And, but it's really important to know that there have been some important stop gaps that have been put in place that really protect participants. In, in medical research
2: so. right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and so not only how how much it you know medicine changes and the speed of it changes in terms of like treatments, but just that like patient protection, right, and how research has changed so much in a relatively short amount of time,
1: too so yeah right, right. But I, that's why I tell people to have conversations with
3: your doctor oh and, yeah, you know, there's no way a primary care provider can keep up can with these
1: none whatsoever. But that was the big conversation on our call today. And how do we kind of ensure that primary care doctors who, and, and it's funny because they're stressed, right? Yeah, I, of primary course. Care doctor was saying she has 19 minutes to see a new patient. I'm like, that's, that's ridiculous. ridiculous. How do you do that? And then you have to go through all the check boxes in terms of, you know, you know no. and all that kind of stuff. It, it, the way we practice medicine in this country is
3: no, you know, I, I think at some point you just have to stand up because, you know, it, it, this is crazy. You can't see anyone in 19 minutes. Nope. Not a new patient.
1: I mean, you can if you have MAs and other people taking most of the information, but I still don't think you can do a thorough job as a clinician, you know, for a primary no, care doctor. Right.
3: Not, and wash your hands and put on your gloves and cover up your stethoscope with a glove. Like, it's just too much.
1: Oh, it's so too much. In the COVID era.
3: In the, in, the, in, the, in the era of Corolla?
1: In the Corolla.
3: is <laughs> too much. But, but actually, my partner, one of the partners and I were talking, we were talking about all the changes in medicine. And, you know, with new drugs that are coming out, it is insane the amount of new drugs that are coming out it's for all these, di- all these different diseases. Yeah. I mean, there are drugs that, you know, I told one patient with MDS, I was like, you know what? I don't know. I I really don't have anything after this drug that I have you on right now, which just was approved in April, right? So I got it for him early. It Mm -hmm. was approved in April. Doesn't look like it's working. I was like, I don't know what else to do. So then a week later, a new MDS drug was approved. I didn't even know it was on the pipeline.
1: That is why the drug
3: company didn't even know it was going to get approved, right?
1: Myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS, is that what Robin, the the newscaster Robin? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. But
2: she got it from chemotherapy. chemotherapy.
1: But but it's one of these kind of disorders where people can end up needing blood transfusions and all kinds exactly. of exactly cells afloat. But it's fascinating, and I, you you guys would probably know it better. Than, I I thought that the key malignancies were one of the fastest growing subspecialties in oncology in terms of new drug development. Or at least it, FDA approvals.
3: Yes. So, so absolutely. So, myeloma, I mean, myeloma, oh. myeloma got up and ran away with new drugs. And yep. still, I mean, even now there are several new drugs for myeloma. Actually, there have been a lot of new drugs approved for even diffuse large B cell lymphoma.
2: I was going to say lymphoma.
3: But, but what we were talking about, you know, we were just talking about all these new drugs and the side effects, right? So, so there are always yeah. these unique side effects. And keeping mm-hmm. up with all of these side effects is really hard because you have to do the chemotherapy education. There's no way a nurse can keep up with all of this. And then you need to try to keep it straight. So we, he was like, yeah. I really want to think of new ways for us to efficiently have these drugs and have a resource where we can get this information quick, quickly, almost like kind of a crowdsourcing of information. Like, you know what, Karen, you were involved in this trial. You know everything about it. Mm -hmm. How can we quickly, efficiently say, okay, boom, here's the drug. Here's everything we need to do. All the side effects Mm-hmm. to quickly tell the patient about it.
2: But see, here's here's the important part again about people knowing what's going on with you and your treatment. When the immunotherapies came out, right? Mm-hmm. That was a whole new set of side effects that were different from traditional chemotherapy, okay?
3: Completely different.
2: So some places were give patients cards to keep in their wallets that say, I am getting this drug and, you know, here are the side effects and please call my oncologist with the immunotherapies. Because if you end up in an ER, maybe that's not, you know, where your oncologist is, maybe doesn't um, have so many cancer patients, you know, and you're on one of the newer drugs that has a whole different side effect profile and a different Mm -hmm. treat side effects, right? And needs an early intervention, with steroids or whatever it is. So people have to know what you're on to know when to intervene. So again, you got to tell people what's going on in your family, right? In case you get sick. And to your point on our end of things of how can we make it clear um, for patients so that if they do get into any sort of um, issue, that whatever the intervention is uh, can be done um and started
3: quickly. Event. Also making sure that your oncologist is fully aware, right? Beca- be, because like you said, you know, a lot of, a lot of these drugs, they're coming, we're doing next, next generation sequencing, which is basically yeah. DNA testing on all of these different cancers. And, you know, there may be four or five new drugs that mm-hmm. you can but- treat th- that are in different indications than what you would normally use. Mm-hmm. That's why,
2: again, it's so important to just know, what you're on, as you say, Zanetta. You know, really knowing, right. writing down the names of the drugs, and knowing what it is you're being treated with and why.
1: But I like the idea so of give that bars. information. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, Giving patients, particularly if it's in New yep. mm-hmm. and the reason why I like that is number one because some of these names are so difficult to pronounce, even for clinicians. oh, yeah. yeah, mabs, all of those. Yep. Right. Have these long drawn out names, and and because it's really hard even for clinicians to keep up. So if somebody uh, has a card and they go to the emergency yeah. medicine, I'm on, they can even yep. look it up. But the other reason uh-huh. why is because as we know, a lot of these clinical trials are not inclusive. There's not diverse populations in the clinical. Exactly.
3: Trials. So when so you're well, seeing new side effects, right? Exactly. Exactly. So
1: Marketing, you might see different uh-huh. things. Whereas exactly. you know, when the clinical trial is done, they may say, well, here are the most common side effects, and you're going to go through and you have a conversation with your patient and say most common side effect is nausea, but we're going to take care of it with this medicine, this medicine, this medicine. But then this patient shows up with chest pain or some other thing right. that wasn't one of the normal indications or, you know, one of the normal, si- some of the side effects is because, you know, our clinical trials are not diverse enough oftentimes to kind of right. look at the whole, you know, cadre of individuals. And so that's why that post-marketing, you know, especially in the first couple of years is really important to kind of do those analyses to look at, side effects and toxicities. And it's, and it's great when, with patients can, if we can help our patients, you know, by giving them a card or by writing it down for them or something and tell them to keep it on that, that, that would be Mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And that post-marketing piece, Karen, is so true because first of all, it's diverse populations. But then if you think about it, a lot of the trials that lead to approvals, some of them have less than a thousand
3: patients treated with the drug. Okay. So so, so for for MDS, you can have between 50 and 70 patients, easy.
2: Yeah. So now you have a clinical trial, right, of patients that are selected based on strict criteria to start mm-hmm. off with. OK, so you're already starting off with kind of a hand picked sample. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get, you know, might be 100, might be less than 100, you know, whatever the number is. And that drug gets approved. That's fine and dandy. You know, that's how things move, uh, move ahead. But now you're introducing that into a not handpicked population of like normal, everyday, regular folks Mm -hmm. who have this disease. And so you are going to see, I think, other things come out um, when you extend it out to a larger population, more diverse, more um, comorbid conditions. So other conditions like maybe maybe your... Maybe your trial was written to not include patients that have high blood pressure. But guess what? Now in the real world,
3: right. people with Everybody, high blood right.
2: pressure get in your meds. So now, like, what happens to them? So, again, um, yeah, so important to keep up with what's happening, what drugs you're on and how you're feeling on them.
3: Yeah. Can can I just say, though, I always, I, I tell patients a lot, but, like, in my oncology lifetime, I've seen the standard of care change mm-hmm. for so many different cancers. Yes. Acute leukemia. Um, there's a disease called CLL. Multiple myeloma. Even lung cancer. Yes. Like how lung are cancer, what I'm seeing definitely. with lung cancer. Yeah. It is fascinating. I, I mean, yeah. just to think, like you know, Melan- seven, yeah. eight years ago, melanoma. Melanoma. I mean, it, it we really.
2: How many yeah. treatments did we learn about for metastatic melanoma? Two. One. <laughs> I was gonna well, say tell me. Like, really?
1: Right. I don't know what you I mean, talking. I, was you're the one. Hey, I right. Know. Right.
2: You <laughs> know, the landscape has changed so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. That's what makes it exciting to be an right. oncologist. That's what right. makes us so um optimistic, you know, right. when it comes to treating patients and telling people that, you know, things
1: have gotten so much better and it's moving along so quickly. I think I was on a call with the FDA or something like this, and there was a general I think it was a general, he was either a general oncologist or might have been a primary care doctor, I can't remember, but he was throwing shade about people who go who specialize. Um, he was like, you know, there are some people who just really want to know just the little narrow piece of medicine. And, you know, some of us, others, we, we like to know a lot about a lot. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a generalist. I would not want to be a primary care doctor just for the reasons that Danetta just talked about, right? Primary care doctor has to understand hypertension and diabetes and all. And so you can imagine if there are, you know, tens, you know, 10 new drugs for each of those diseases, you know, that come out every year, just, just 10 for, you know, those two drugs, that's 20 drugs, you have to figure out toxicities and side effect profiles and go through things. It's hard, it's hard enough being an oncologist and specializing, I mean, you guys have to deal with a lot, especially with all new immunotherapeutics, and I still need to understand them as a radiation oncologist, because I have to worry about when ha- people get concurrent therapy, right? When they exactly. Radiation with chemotherapy. And I'm very highly conservative, as he will tell you. I'm not giving radiation therapy to somebody who's having something that I don't know anything about. And if there's no literature for it, I'm not doing it. And I know mm-hmm. some of my colleagues mm-hmm. get mad at me. And it's like, well, it's a targeted agent. It is, you know, it, it shouldn't have any interaction. I said, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. But we don't know. Especially when we're talking about giving somebody treatment in their spine or a nerve or some other sensitive organ like the eye, I am not going to give concurrent radiation therapy unless I have good data to show me that it's safe. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's hard. So I am so grateful I'm a specialist and I'm a sub-sub-specialist. And
3: I'm, happy. <laughs> I'm so happy. But I am happy to be sub sub. Happy, happy, happy,
2: I just I want to give a shout out to the primary care docs though, because in a lot of ways, I think they have like the hardest job. Absolutely. <laughs> to do. be the gatekeeper for all that, for all of this stuff, you know. And we're just talking about minutes. Yes, and we're just yeah. talking about our stuff, cancer stuff, like right. They're the yeah. gatekeeper for everything, right? So. Shout out to the primary care
1: docs. (laughs) Shout out to the primary care doctors. Free Black Docs is not intended as medical advice. All opinions are our own. Free Black Docs is produced by Wings Productions.
3: Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Free Black Docs is available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We cannot say enough nice things about our favorite Three Black Dogs, Dr. Karen, Dr. Tiffany, and Dr. Zanetta of the Three Black Dogs podcast. We are big fans. If you haven't had a chance to listen to them, you can find their terrific show wherever you find your podcasts. The Our NBC Life podcast is for the NBC community, developed by people living with NBC in an effort to lift up marginalized voices, share stories, and experiences. We are gearing up for our second season in just a week, March 1. And we cannot wait to share these conversations with people living with NBC and the experts who help make our lives better. It is a fantastic lineup. Thank you for listening to our bonus episode.